Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast with your host, Rajan Nanavati. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast. This is Rajan coming to you solo as Pat is actually being a supportive spouse and joining his wife as the latter supports her Seattle Seahawks on Monday Night Football. Um, to that end, I'm actually recording this in the middle of said Seattle-Philadelphia Monday Night game, hoping the Eagles lose by 100 because, well, they're still an NFC East rival at the end of the day, which means I still hate them. But uh, given the news that emerged today as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affected the once-again-postponed game between the Baltimore Ravens and Pittsburgh Steelers and the ramifications of that, I wanted to ensure that we kept the content train rolling on Hail to the District since we're obviously coming out of the Thanksgiving weekend when we were, of course, in too much of a food coma to record anything. And of course, because we don't know when we'll get to record uh, our next podcast after the Washington football team plays the aforementioned Steelers. So I want to make sure we kept that train going, um, especially given in light of everything that happened. But before we get there, let's take a step back and kind of shed some final thoughts about Washington's ever so heartwarming win against the hilariously incompetent Dallas Cowboys last Thursday on, of course, Thanksgiving Day. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast know that when it comes to talking about Dallas, um, I, I tend to be more measured. In general, I tend to be a little more pragmatic in every other circumstance. But uh, when it comes to Dallas, I throw humility or pragma- pragmatism out the window. Anytime Dallas gets humiliated, my day gets a little better. Anytime Dallas gets humiliated on national television, it's that much sweeter. But when Dallas gets humiliated by Washington on national television, there are absolutely few feelings, if any really, in the world that can match that level of joy. Um, In terms of the game itself, the old football cliche is that every game comes down to a small handful of plays. And and at the risk of giving any oxygen to tired cliches or tired sports cliches, you really can point to three or maybe four plays or circumstances that really define the outcome of that game. So let's jump into the first one, which was Ezekiel Elliott's fumble on the Cowboys' opening drive of the second half. And to kind of take you back to those circumstances, it was second and four, and the Cowboys were running a handoff out of 12 personnel, which means one running back and two tight ends. And um, as uh, Dalton hands off the ball, Andy Dalton hands off the ball to, to Elliott, and as he's crossing the line of scrimmage, Jonathan Allen, who had a hell of a game in that game, um, he stacks the Dallas center at the point of attack, he sheds him, and then he makes this diving tackle to bring down Elliott. And as Zeke is falling, his arm inadvertently hits Deron Payne's shin. Deron Payne also had a hell of a game in that game. Um, and the arm hitting said shin causes the fumble. Now, for anyone, from a, especially from a fantasy football purpose, who might have been wondering why the Cowboys have been a bit gun-shy on handing the ball to Elliott this season, because he's actually well behind his usual rushing attempt averages that he had over the first four seasons of his career, um, look no further than the fact that he's fumbled the ball and lost more fumbles than any non-quarterback in the NFL this year. He's lost more fumbles than Daniel Jones this season, and as anyone who's heard me on this podcast is well aware, uh, I firmly believe, as the data will show you, that Jones hasn't met a podcast, hasn't met a podcast, hasn't met a turnover, that he isn't ready to commit. Like, that guy shouldn't even be trusted to hold his own firstborn child at any point, because he f- might find a way to fumble the infant. But uh, back to Elliot's fumble, 
Um, instead of having a chance to kind of respond with the opening drive of the second half, Dallas would actually end up surrendering a field goal on that drive to Washington, and it actually could have been more points if David Sharp, who I will talk about in a little later, uh, hadn't completely block, blocked the wrong person on a third and one that Demarcus Lawrence had shot through the line and ended up blowing up Smith while he was still backpedaling to hand the ball off to Peyton Barber. I'm going to move on to the second most uh, important play of the game. Um, many will argue is actually the most influential one, especially as anyone who watched the game can attest to as well. And that was Terry McLaurin's tackle on the Jalen Smith interception return. Again, painting the picture of those circumstances, um, Dallas had a four-pass rusher formation on the field. In certain instances, they called that the NASCAR formation, if you will, with four fast guys. And in the play... Alden Smith absolutely blew up Wes Schweitzer, the left guard. And in the process, uh, Randy Gregory kind of ran this stunt in the seam created by Smith, who has lined up actually a defensive tackle in that four-alignment spot. And Gregory kind of looped around, ran up that seam, um, created by Smith torpedoing, Alden Smith torpedoing the left side of the line and basically putting Schweitzer on skates and putting J.D. McKissick right into Alex Smith's lap. Um, now, it was obviously a really bad decision by Smith in terms of throwing the ball. Um, he's shown a proclivity, unfortunately, to make those types of throws this season. And it was even worse when you really take a look at the play because there was nobody open in that vicinity who Smith could have realistically been targeting. But to the interception, obviously went right to Jalen Smith. And as you know, Smith runs down, um, or McLaurin runs down Smith, I should say, which gives the Cowboys basically the ball on the four-yard line of the Washington football team instead of giving them a touchdown. And then on the ensuing drive, the first play, Elliott loses two yards. On second down, Dallas tries to run the Philly special. That's how desperate things have gotten. Except CeeDee Lamb loses four yards. And then on the ensuing play on third down, Lamb bobbles the third and goal pass, which he should have caught. And I can't believe he's been dropping so many passes this year. Um, just what a disappointing rookie season for him. Again, not that I really care because, well, he plays for the Cowboys now. Um, and as he's bobbling it, only Jimmy Moreland, shout out to the People's Corner, and Jeremy Reeves break up the pass. And while we're on the subject of Reeves, I want to make sure I take a moment to recognize what he did against Dallas. Uh, he entered the game basically after yet another coverage lapse by the unabashedly worthless Troy Apke. Um, and again, it was Reeves who actually blew up Lamb on that second down quote-unquote Philly special. And he basically played the game brilliantly for the rest of that, again, after breaking, on to, breaking up that third down pass in the end zone as well, that Lamb bobbled. In fact, according to Pro Football Focus, Reeves' grade against Dallas was the highest grade that any Washington safety received for any game this season. Now, I know that our safeties have not played very well for large portions of this year, so it's not like Reeves had this really high standard of comparison, but still. We're basically talking about a taxi squad type of player over the first three years of his career after entering the NFL in 2018, and now there's little reason to think he couldn't continue to be at least an answer at the position for the remainder of this season. You guys are very well familiar, for those of you who listen to me, how much I've been harping on the gap at free safety. Uh, he sure is shit better than uh, Troy Apke, but I mean, any you know, a turd sandwich would be better than that. And at least so far, in a brief moment in time, he's probably played better than DeShazer Everett. Also, from the safety position, I want to make sure I give a shout out to uh, 
Reeves' new running mate in rookie Cam Curl, Washington's seventh-round pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, who played really, really well himself. Um, I think Brian Baldinger on his Brian on his Baldy's Breakdown video had a had a video of like Cam Curl just blowing shit up and making some really, really great open field tackles. So if you don't follow Brian Baldinger's account on Twitter, make sure you go to do, make sure you do so. Um, but to pin a, put a pin on this second turning point of the game, Dallas started on Washington's four-yard line, went backwards six yards, and ended up with only three points when they could have or should have, depending on how you look at it, had seven points based off the Jalen Smith interception return, which, of course, Terry McLaurin broke up. Uh, the enormity of that just can't be understated. Um, and then the third final, the third point, and the final one perhaps, which to me you could actually argue was the real proverbial wooden stake through the heart of the Cowboys, was the fake failed punt. Now, I want to be really, really clear. That was a breathtakingly stupid decision. There's no other way to describe it besides downright idiotic, if not actually brain dead. I fully recognize I was the one, especially and particularly in our podcast after the game against Cincinnati, who shouted that on any fourth and short situation, no team should ever punt when they're between the 20-yard lines. But Dallas had fourth and 10 on their 24-yard line. There were moments throughout the first quarter, the second quarter, and even that point in the third quarter, I think this took place in the fourth, where it felt like Dallas was one big play themselves from surging ahead. If they could have stopped shooting themselves in the foot, they could have realized that each of Washington's prior five drives up to that point netted a total of 45 yards or less. Why wouldn't you just pin Washington deep in their own territory, force a punt, because again, Washington's offense was sputtering or did have its own fits and starts, get good field position, and then try to take a shot downfield? That's what anyone with a functioning set of brain cells would have done. They really would have realized that Amari Cooper, despite Ronald Darby playing relatively well for stretches of the game, was having a big game. Why not go back to him? But no, that would require having a functioning brain, which is why, of course, Mike McCarthy didn't do it. And the icing of the cake in this entire situation was that the fake punt fooled absolutely nobody. If you freeze the play as soon as the handoff is made out of the shotgun snap and the fake punt, you can already see Jeremy Reeves, Fabian Moreau, and Kaliki Hudson making a beeline to the ball. Now, to make matters even worse for Dallas, as the Cowboys tried to toss it back to Tavon Austin to reverse the field, you could see a bunch of the Cowboys linemen just standing there with a thumb up their ass. I mean, they made no reasonable attempt to block any of Washington's guys in pursuit. It is obvious that Dallas had a bunch of back-of-the-bench guys out there blocking on that fake punt attempt, but I can't even say they were out there playing a game of grab-ass, because even that game of grab-ass would have required more effort than those scrubs and morons showed on that play. It is absolutely inconceivable, if not reprehensible, that on a fake punt like that, Austin was met by at least two Washington defenders when he was three yards behind the line of scrimmage. Cam Curl and Kaliki Hudson converged on Austin, and Sean Dion Hamilton was right there. I mean, it was just the perfect storm of incompetence from the Cowboys. And to add insult to stupidity, once Washington got the ball again deep in Dallas territory because of the fake punt, Antonio Gibson runs for 24 yards, literally untouched, on the ensuing play. Dallas gets the ball back again, 
punts after five plays. Washington gets the, the football back, and that led to another long touchdown run by Gibson, which basically all but sealed the game. And, it, and if that didn't seal the game, the fourth big play of the game, if you will, although I think the game was already out of hand at that point, was Montez Sweat's batted pass pick six. So Washington won the game by a final of 41-16. to 16. I find it hilarious that Dallas lost the previous game by 22 points despite the fact that Ben DiNucci had to play significant portions of it and they played in Washington only to come home after a big win against the against the Minnesota Vikings this prior weekend with Andy Dalton playing the full game and they lost by 25 points I mean how how awful can you possibly be as a head coach wait a second don't answer that Mike McCarthy is their coach so you know I, I think I answered my own question um also, by the way, from a Washington perspective, do you know it's been almost four years since Washington scored 40 once in a, 41 points in a game? I actually had to look it up. The last time they scored 40 or more points in a game was December of 2016 against the Chicago Bears. That's insane. Although that's probably insanely depressing if we're going to be completely honest. So let's look at something a bit more optimistic. Um Regardless of how Washington ends this season, we'll get to enjoy the fact that this is just the third time that Washington has swept the Dallas Cowboys since the turn of the century. They did it in 2005, and they did it in 2012. And I'm just going to put this out there, fully recognizing it's not going to happen, but for the sake of argument, let's not forget that Washington ended those aforementioned 2005 and 2012 seasons with winning streaks of at least five games. And for those counting at home, there are five games left in this season. Again, I'm not predicting Washington's going to go on a win streak, but I am saying those are rather interesting, if not serendipitous, circumstances. Which kind of then, of course, brings us to today's news, that the Washington football team's next game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are the lone undefeated NFL team in the NFL, lone defeated team in the NFL, without saying NFL twice, um, that game has obviously been pushed to Monday, December 7th, as a result of the scheduling twister that the Steelers-Ravens game has endured because of COVID-19. Now, if you've been a fan of the Washington football franchise in the Dan Snyder era, you know that three of the most guaranteed things in the world are death, taxes, and Washington losing, if not getting embarrassed themselves, on Monday Night Football. Our only consolation is that this game is at 5 p.m., which means a lot of people are not going to be watching this game, and that this game is not FedEx Field, where our record on Monday Night Football is something like three wins and 700 losses in the Dan Snyder era. Um, in addition to having to play on the horror show that is Monday Night Football, Washington gets further screwed by the fact that they'll turn around and have a short week to take on the San Francisco 49ers that ensuing Sunday, wherever the hell that game actually takes place, once again because of the fuckery committed by COVID-19. Um, but focusing particularly on the Steelers game, uh, I think the main thing that sticks out to me initially or immediately, the big red flag, red siren glaring right off the bat is that Alex Smith better eat his vitamins and say his prayers for the next few days because Pittsburgh's defense has been absolutely savage this year. Um, edge, washer, edge, edge washers, edge rushers TJ Watt and Bud Dupree combined with edge rusher Stefan Tuitt, the latter of whom is also really, really good, by the way, but tends to get overlooked by the media and such. They've combined the three of them for 23 sacks this season as of the, this podcast being recorded. To put that into context... Those three guys have combined for more sacks 
alone than 15 different NFL teams this year. Watt and Vince and linebacker Vince Williams are two of the top three guys in the NFL this year in terms of tackles for loss. And just for good measure on top of all of this, safety Minka Fitzpatrick is tied for third in the NFL with four interceptions this season, despite the fact that people are saying that he's having a bit of an quote-unquote off year, although pro football focus still hasn't ranked among the top safeties, top 10 safeties in the NFL to be specific, so yeah. Um, TJ Watt in particular at worst, at worst, is a top four edge rusher in the NFL today. And being completely honest, that's probably underselling him quite a bit. You could have a very spirited debate right now as to whether he or Miles Garrett has become the best pass rusher in the NFL this year. And many people believe that it's actually between TJ Watt and the incomparable Aaron Donald for the NFL's Defensive Player of the Year award. So heaven help us all if or when they move Watt to the left side of the defensive formation, meaning he's lined up over backup tackle David Sharp, the latter of whom has been absolutely god-awful this year. And I want to make sure that I talk about Sharp because, you know, you have to throw his mention in, in particular with the Cowboys game, a little bit into the, the Bengals game prior to that. I think he got in against the Giants as well. I could, memory could be, um, I could be blurring lines here. But um, David Sharp, as I mentioned, has been absolutely terrible. I mean, just downright awful. That's that's just being awful is a very, very kind term to describe how he's played this year. Um, in fact, saying Sharp has been beaten like a rented mule by opposing teams isn't really fair to rented mules because they definitely don't get beat that badly. It's probably more accurate to say that Sharp is like the Angolan basketball team in the 1992 Summer Olympics, and anyone lined up in front of Sharp is basically the 1992 Dream Team. Like, I lost count of how many times Alex Smith was under duress against the Cowboys directly as a result of Sharp getting beat by the guy in front of him. It happened countless times. If you go back and watch that game, if you find that Smith is under pressure or he's throwing a pass a bit faster than he than he was supposed to, I would give you at least 80% odds that it was because Sharp blew a block and that guy was bearing down on Smith. Um, the coaching staff had to repeatedly put a running back or tight end on that side of the formation to help him out. Otherwise, again, he would just get humiliated play after play after play after play after play. He is as bad as any lineman I've seen sued up for the Burgundy and Gold in years. So, God, if you're listening, please, 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 please bring Cornelius Lucas back to the lineup. Imagine us thinking such a, th- a thought before the start of the season, but we can't take any more of this. Um, otherwise, we may get Alex Smith badly hurt again if Pittsburgh's edge rushers are teeing off on David Sharp's side of the formation. But enough about him. We'll take a look at a few of the positive matchup opportunities in this game. Um, in particular, Pittsburgh has been a bit, emphasis on a tiny bit, more malleable against the run this year than they have against the pass. Again, don't get me wrong. There's still a top seven defense against the run, but it's not quite as um, formidable as their number one ranking against the pass, according to footballoutsiders.com. In fact, in three of the last four games that the Steelers have played, they have allowed the opposing team to run for a combined 100 yards at least. So point being, we'll need a big game from the committee of Gibson, Barber, and McKissick to make sure we take some of the pressure off of Smith in more ways than one and keep Pittsburgh's offense off the field. Um, To that end, you know, the Steelers obviously don't have Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell in their prime anymore. But Ben Roethlisberger, again, he's not Ben Roethlisberger from five years ago himself, but he's kind of entered that cerebral mastery phase of his career. Um, 
you know, for all the talent Washington has up front on the defense, it might end up being completely neutralized to a really large extent, given what we've seen from the way Roethlisberger is playing right now and the way the Steelers' offensive line is kind of protecting him and the symbiosis the two of them has really formed. Um, it's been impossible to rattle Big Ben for nearly this entire year, as the stats will attest to. For instance, he's top five in the NFL in touchdown-to-interception ratio alongside of Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, and Ryan Tannehill. And yes, it still feels strange to mention Ryan Tannehill in that group, but that's where the numbers bear out. Um, Roethlisberger just trails Philip Rivers for the NFL lead in fewest sacks on a per-dropback basis. He's just seeing what the opposing defense is doing, attacking the gaps in defensive pass coverage, and getting the ball out right away to the right spot. Uh, according to NFL's next-gen stats, no quarterback snaps the ball and gets the pass out faster than Roethlisberger. And you know his passes travel the fourth-fewest air yards among all qualifying quarterbacks because he's just getting it to the right spot at the right time. In many ways, he's kind of playing a bigger, burlier version of Alex Smith. And I can't believe I just compared the two of them, but if you really look at their playing style, that's what we're seeing a lot. His yards per attempt is markedly down this year than it was in years past. Um, you know, and, and he can kind of get the ball out that quickly because what the Steelers lack in quality in terms of their offensive weapons, like having that high-end Antonio Brown or Le'Veon Bell, if you will, they make up for quantity, or they make up for it, rather, in quantity. Um, it's, it's really hard for opponents to clamp down on Juju Smith-Schuster and rookie Chase Claypool and second-year receiver Deontay Johnson, who's been playing really, really well as of late, and the big play threat that comes from James Washington and tight end Eric Ebron when he actually catches the ball instead of dropping it. Uh, you know, that's that gives him a lot of weapons, especially against, you know, our defense that has been a little bit susceptible. Um, if Washington really is to unseat the Steelers or beat the Steelers, you know, next Monday, they're going to need a few things. Um, for one, we should probably hope that Pittsburgh pulls out a tough and hard-fought win against the Baltimore Ravens. And they just come into the game against Washington being totally emotionally spent because that type of trap game scenario is probably the context that Washington needs to, you know, pull out the win, in a, to pull out the win in general, right? But more importantly than all of that, Washington just, they can't beat themselves. We can't put ourselves in situations where we commit a bunch of holding penalties to stop the Steelers from obliterating Alex Smith. We can't get just flat-out beat by Pittsburgh defenders and putting Smith in position where he has to throw it to the wrong team, which, again, he's shown a little bit of a proclivity to do, and juxtapose that with the fact that no team has picked off opposing quarterbacks more than the Steelers this year. Um, when Washington's on defense, again, mentioning when I was talking about with Big Ben, they can't play this soft underneath style of zone defense, hoping their front seven gets home. We've seen a lot of that over the last few weeks. It's it's getting a little annoying. It worked against Dallas. It's not going to work against Pittsburgh. Um, that plays exactly into what the Steelers want to do. I mentioned this a little bit against Cincinnati, and this echoes the same in terms of playing Pittsburgh. On average, as I mentioned, Roethlisberger snaps the ball and throws the pass in less than 2.3 seconds. That's the fastest in the NFL. And that's just not enough time to mount an effective pass rush against him, even if you bring the blitz. Like, Roethlisberger's just going to play pitch and catch back there against, once again, the back seven of our defense that definitely has its share of concerns to be, you know, polite. So, um, you know, it, when you sum it all up, it's really hard to go into this game against Pittsburgh with a ton of confidence 
if you look at it from a purely analytical or factual basis. But appealing to the emotional, if not the irrational part of you. Imagine how things could look if Washington does pull off the upset. There is a lot of momentum that could be created going into a game against a banged-up San Francisco 49ers team, again, who's basically living away from home because of the circumstances in Northern California. After that, while we should not be looking forward in any way, shape, or form to take on Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks the following week, that's still a team that's gone 3-3 three and three over their last six games, assuming they hold on to beat the Eagles tonight, as the, this podcast is taking place. And they'll be leaving the friendly confines of Starbucks Stadium or Nirvana Arena or whatever the hell their stadium is called now to come to Washington. After that, when we're talking about the games against Carolina and Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh, Carolina and Philadelphia to close out the season, we could realistically be talking about that P word. And yes, by P word, I actually mean playoffs. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this out loud, but such is life of irrational fandom. Um, but let's get through next Monday evening first. Obviously, you know, you have to kind of play that football game instead of dreaming of things that may not come to fruition in general. So uh, if Pat and I aren't able to drop something late Monday evening after the game, you can be sure we'll do so Tuesday evening and have it ready for you guys on Wednesday evening, or excuse me, by Wednesday morning, early morning. So until then, thanks for sticking with me all the way through the end of this episode. I hope all of you had a tremendously enjoyable and calorie-filled Thanksgiving long weekend. I hope all of you are healthy and safe. Um, and as always, as I say at the end of every episode, if you have not done so, please subscribe to us on SoundClouds, iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And do give us a follow on Twitter, again, if you have not done so, at Hail2DC, H-A-I-L-T-O-D-C. Pretty simple right there. But in the meantime, I will talk to you later, or we will talk to you later, hopefully after yet another victory by the Washington. Thank you for listening to the Hail to the District podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.